to the City Hill podcast. We really hope you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london. So today we're looking at Song of Solomon chapter 3 and chapter 4. I'm just going to grab out a few little bits and we're going to kind of play with it a little. So chapter 3. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen found me as they were about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely have I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him. I would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I drew you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That last bit, don't stir up love until like the right time. I mean, I love that phrase. It's almost what it is. It is it's kind of like saying like, you know what? Let's don't 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 start this early in case you screw it up. You know that moment when you're in a relationship where you're just like, do I don't I? Will this kill our friendship? Will this not? It's kind of like not rushing into it. It's going just let it just let it sit. Let it be what it'll be. Give it that moment. Hold this with the value and the care it deserves because this is something that's so 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 precious. What I love about it is it talks about. Like she's in her bed, she just can't stop thinking about the one whom her soul loves. And obviously there's no like, there's no um, phone, can't champagne pappy, can't call, call me on my cell phone, let no one in. You can't do any of that. You can't text, you can't tweet, you can't at someone, you can't Snapchat, you can't do any of that stuff. It's like they're just not there and can't get them out of them, her mind. And then she just goes out to find him. She's just completely consumed and goes seeking, going to find him, running through the city, running through the streets, running through the square, going everywhere. The watchmen who make sure the place is safe overnight. She's going, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? And then no sooner she, she asks him that she bumps into him. And when she does, she grabs a hold of him and she doesn't let him go. And what she does is she takes him to the mother's house. It talks about to the chamber where she was conceived. Most of the houses you're in, especially for this lady who we already know from last week's series, um, she's of the lower classes. She's looked after the the, the sheep and and the vineyards uh, because her brothers didn't want to always do it. And so they got her doing it. So she's from the lower classes. So she'd have been in a house that is like one room. So when it talks to the house, it's not like she went to the house and go, let's get jiggy with it. I took her into my mom's room. You know what I mean? Like sometimes people read this because it's a love letter. They kind of read that and go like, oh, hello. That's not what that is. That's like, that's literally it. That's the house. It's like that room. Um, And so it takes her there to the point where she was conceived. There's a few few things that I want to talk about. And the thing that hit me the most this week when I was reading it was I was consumed by the idea of what Rabbi Akiva said where he talked about Song of Solomon being the Holy of Holies that is kind of entering into this really sacred space and this nature of how God loves us but how we also pursue God because you see God in the, in the king in the story who's also a shepherd and you also see her as a shepherdess and like his church and his people which is like us and how she has this overwhelming passion to like chase after him. And I think what really challenged me is I can think of different times in my life where I've had this passion to just be with him, to con- consume, to like chase after God, to want to engage with God on some level. And I think it asks questions of you and I. It asked the question of me, that would I be running around through the streets? Would I be running through the squares for someone? Would I be, and I don't think I would. And then I started thinking about God in the times of my life where I've actually had like a passion for him to the point where I would just, just drop everything to want to know him, to want to engage with him. And then when she gets a hold of him, she doesn't let go of him. 
I started to think about, well, this is kind of like a picture, this is kind of like a, a simile, this is kind of like a description, this is poetry, this is creative, this is a beautiful piece. But I started to think, is there someone in the Bible that I can look at that I think has had this exact encounter? Is there someone I can think about who relates in this way? And the person that I started to think about was a guy called Saul. Now, Saul spent his life pursuing after God, chasing after him. He was a, a, a Jew, he was a Pharisee, he was one of the up-and-coming talents, a social innovator, like an upcoming hotshot lawyer in his community. And he had this moment where he was going about having Christians killed for kind of twisting a faith as he saw it. One day he saw this guy, Stephen, being dragged out before them and giving his case for who Jesus was. And he didn't start with Jesus' story in the Gospels. He started right back at the beginning of the, the Jewish people's faith. He took them through all the main characters, all the heroes of their faith that they loved and adored and used them all to point toward Jesus. And at the end of it, they were so outraged, they grabbed him, dashed him outside, they picked up rocks and they threw them at him until he died. And as he was dragged out in front of them and about to be killed, um, the words in, in Acts, it says that, he, he, he was on his knees in front of the people and he looked up and he said, I see the heavens opening and I see Jesus. I see the Son of Man at the right-hand side of the Father. And then they started throwing the rocks and they were screaming aloud so that he could no longer speak any words to influence people. But we know from this account that obviously Saul was standing there and he remembers the words and he heard them because they're penned in the, in the book of Acts and they had such a profound effect on him. And he said that at the moment while they were throwing and killing this man, it says that the people who came to throw the stones came to a young man called Saul and they laid their garments before him as they were ready to, to stone him. And by laying their garments before him, they, he, he was like signing off that we're going to duppy this youth, we're going to kill this guy. And so they're laying these, these cloaks before Saul, Saul signing off the deal and then they're throwing the rocks and, and, and Saul says like, almost as if you can hear him saying, I can never get these words out of my head. He said that he heard Stephen saying, God, do not let this sin be brought against them. Don't let it be brought against them. I tell you what, I reckon Saul, over the period of his life and beforehand, growing up around this system of, of protecting their faith, protecting their beliefs, protecting their community from outside views and interference, I believe he'd seen quite a few people killed. I believe he'd never seen someone being killed by these people who was crying out for them to be forgiven, that they wouldn't receive this. I think that was something that was hard for Saul to kind of shake off. Saul then gets really passionate about this and thinks we have to stamp this out. So he, he goes to the, to the big dons and he asks them to sign off that they'll go to Damascus. They won't just keep the fight at Jerusalem and in, they'll move outwards towards Damascus. He's heard there's a lot of Christians in Damascus and he goes there to go kill a load of people. And in all of this, he, what he's really doing is he's running through the city, he's running through the streets, he's running through the towns and he's really just desperately chasing after God. That's what he's doing. He's only doing this for that reason. He's doing this out of a passion and out of a love. He's not a man consumed by hate, but a man trying to protect a love and a relationship that he sees. And he goes to Damascus and on his way there, it says that Saul was blinded by this bright light and the other people with him couldn't see the light, but they could hear the voice. And it said, Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? Who, who are you? Who am I persecuting? And it was Jesus. And he says, you're gonna to go to Damascus, but you're gonna go stay at this place. And you're gonna remain there. And you're gonna pray. So he prays and then God speaks to another man in the, in the town and says, um, Saul has been blinded by me and I need you to go pray for him. And when you go pray for him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal him. And the guy's like, oh, allow that, bruv. We've all heard about Saul. Saul's out here banging. He's killing all of, all of us lot. Like, why am I going to go and, 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 and pray for a guy to be healed that's, that's, that's killing, killing my people, killing my family? But he's obedient to God and he goes there and he does that. And what happens is Saul is healed and in that moment, 
his whole entire life changes. It changes. He has a moment where he finds his love. He's been running around the streets, running around the city, trying to find his love, and this moment he finds his love, and he won't let go. He won't let go. You know, for three years, Saul stays like in the place where he's encountered this Jesus, and he pursues Jesus with all he has, learning everything he can about the Gospels, everything he can about God and who he is. And he just, he just clings on. And I, I think about that passage in Song of Solomon and what happens is she brings her love to the place where she's born. And it's like this is the place where Saul experiences and waits for his rebirth and, and experiences it. And I feel like when we get a hold of Jesus, there's this moment where you chase after him. But when you encounter him, there's an opportunity for absolute rebirth that you can be whoever you are today you could be someone completely different and completely transformed whatever it is you've been hung up on in life that's been always lingering in the back of your mind you can experience a rebirth where that's no longer the thing that defines who you are anymore you can imagine if you're someone running around killing christians that would be something that you would be known for throughout history that's not the kind of thing you just shrug off that people forget about but that is no longer the defining mark for Saul's life The defining mark of Saul's life is he then goes risking his life constantly that other people would be saved. I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The lover doesn't find him, but doesn't go, okay, I haven't found him, that's it. It's not like, you know, you too, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Oh well, let's all go home. It's, I haven't found him, I'm going to pursue, I'm going to pursue, I'm going to pursue. And when she does, she doesn't let go. Saul, all his life, had this religious zeal within him, but he still hadn't found what he was looking for. And it's when he finds Jesus, he holds on to him and encounters a whole new rebirth and a whole new identity. I think the thing that captivated me was that in chapter 3 of Song of Solomon, it's all about chasing after the love and finding him and then never letting him go. But then chapter 4 is is completely, completely, completely different. Chapter four is about admiring the beauty of his bride. Admiring the beauty of his bride. Song of Solomon, chapter four. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. Behind your veil, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from washing, all of which bear twins. And not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like the scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stones. It hangs a thousand shields of all the um, of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins gazelles that gaze among the lilies. Bow chicka bow wow. This is why the 13-year-olds couldn't read it. To, well, kids couldn't read it till they turned 13, the boys. Until the day the breeze and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountains of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak, from the den of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel from your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Man, when I started to read about that and I started to think about who Saul was when he was a guy running around, chasing around the streets, metaphorically, chasing after who God was, who he becomes to becoming a person of absolute abject beauty, which is actually the same thing that I see that God does in each and every single one of us. 
I'm looking at Saul's story, Saul becoming Paul, but actually this is the same thing that happens in you, that happens in me, that we get to encounter through the gospel. So in the book of Acts, there's a story about a Philippian Philippian jailer, jailer who gets converted. I want to read you this little story. So just bear in mind the first story I told you about Saul. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison's doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the jailers had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Man, I look at that story and I feel like the shades, can you see like the, the two completely parallel contrasting stories? How he's going out imprisoning people and then brutally killing them, and now he's imprisoned, this earthquake happens. Like, let me tell you, man, let's be real. If you were a Christian that was being held in prison for your faith, an earthquake happened, the doors to the jail fell off and your chains fell off, what would you be doing? You'd be going, yes, Lord, I knew you were gonna set me free. You'd have legged it out of the jail. You would, wouldn't you? Let's be real, 100%, 100%. If a policeman threw you in the back of a car and left the door unlocked, I've seen it happen. Have my boy Michael. Michael's an absolute moron though, because Michael goes out of the car and then hangs around in those ends for another two hours and gets arrested a second time. Because Michael's an idiot. But that door's unlocked, I'm out of there. You, you leave that, you throw me in a police car, you leave the door unlocked, bruv, I'm gone. I'm gone and I'm getting a bus out, man. I'm not hanging around like, hey, wait, hey, he left the door. I've got to go tell people. Yeah, nice one. Such a donut. True story, not even false. True story. That's what we'd be. We'd be like, I knew the Lord was gracious and compassionate and I knew he wanted to set me free. God's amazing. We'd walk straight out of that jail. But Paul stays in the jail and Silas stays in the cell and the guy realizes what's happened. He takes his sword, he's gonna kill himself because he knows when the Romans roll up and they're like, where are the prisoners, fam? They're gonna, they're gonna kill this guy. So he goes, it's better I do it myself than what they're gonna do to me. So he's ready to like end his own life. And in that moment, Saul's like, Paul's like, hey, hey, we're still here, we're still here. And when he comes, he says, what should I, must I do to be saved? He's been hearing the hymns, he's been hearing the songs. You see, what happens in Saul to Paul and the beauty of this transformation is Paul has a problem inside himself and with everyone else and he's holding them captive and putting the heat on them. And then the encounter with Jesus and holding on to him leads him to a place where he is now the opposite and he's running out that he would be captive that someone else could be set free. Paul stays in the cell because he realized he isn't the one in prison. He realizes the jailer doesn't know the gospel and the jailer doesn't know Jesus. And so Paul is like, I'm not running from death from death row, I'm not running out 
into the open, away from my fate, away from my situation when I can set someone free for eternity. And when I look at this, I think of 1 John 4, it says in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I look at a man like Saul who seems like a man consumed with hate, but really is just a lover running around the streets trying to find God. And when he finds God, he clings onto him and doesn't let him go and then lives a life that is completely outward focused, not for his own gain. And then I think of Song of Solomon chapter four and I think how beautiful my love is, how beautiful my bride is. And you know what? I feel the call of God for me, for you, for us collectively as individuals, I believe God calls us to chase after him. That If we don't have that love, if we haven't had that encounter with him, you've got to run after him. And when you find him not, you just keep running. And you may look a bit crazy, you may feel a bit crazy when you're at home alone and you're, and you're praying in your room and you're going, God, I just want to know you. I just want to meet with you, God. I just want you. I just want you. I just want you. Which is like the love of running through the streets of the city, through the squares, through the, through the alleys going, where, where is he? Where is he? But when she encounters him, she doesn't let go. When you encounter Jesus in the gospel, you cling on to something so powerful you don't let go because you know that in holding on, you're going to experience rebirth. You're going to experience a new life and a new transformation. And then you're going to become something more beautiful than anyone could ever imagine. Something that even God himself looks upon you and goes, look at the beauty. Because he sees the abject transformation of one that is no longer consumed with their own image but outside. It's like your phone. It's like your phone. You, 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 we all take pictures and we always flip the camera on ourselves. It's always a selfie. But what the gospel does is it calls us to flip the camera outward to see others as being of true innate value. It's just flipping the camera, guys. The devil will have you taking pictures of yourself your whole life, seeing your own beauty. Chapter four sees the beauty of someone else, but God sees the beauty in us. And he calls us to be like him, seeing the beauty in the world around us. I'm going to pray for us today and then that'll be it for this week. Father, I thank you for the absolute beauty within all of us. But Father God, when we are comfortable in the true beauty that is within us, not just in this, the superficial and the, the surface looks that we have, but actually when we're so comfortable in that, Lord, our life doesn't become one that is completely gravitated around the celebration of ourselves but the celebrations of others around us and the opportunity we get to do that. Father, I thank you that Saul was a man chasing after ratings his whole life from his community, gaining an influence and stature as a hotshot lawyer, persecuting the church for ratings, and all of a sudden he stopped chasing after likes and he started chasing after life. He flipped the camera around and he risked his life day after day telling others that they would experience newness of life, eternal life. Something that goes beyond longevity, but into the quality of what they receive. Father, I pray that we would be people like Paul, who aren't always so quick to run out of our situation, but we're happy to linger a little while for someone else's benefit, for them to experience liberation and freedom in their situation. That the testimony doesn't end with us being set free, the testimony ends with us becoming agents that are used by God to set other people free. I pray this week, Lord, that you would use each one of us to bring liberation, love, and light into the lives of those who are around us, Lord. In Jesus' name.
really hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london. Uh-huh.